Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This contest between authoritarian regimes and democracy is the contest of the 21st century. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. In this episode, Peter Khalil, MP, the recently appointed Chair of the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, joins Professor Rory Medcalf in conversation. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to the Elders past and present. Welcome back to the National Security Podcast, and I'm really delighted to welcome to this episode of the podcast, Peter Khalil, Peter Khalil MP. Uh, Peter is the Labor Member of Parliament for the federal seat of Wills, and importantly for us here at the National Security College, he's the new chair of the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. Peter is a prominent voice on national security in Parliament, in the new Parliament, and it's really great to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much, Rory, for having me here at the National Security College. It's wonderful. So, look, I'll start, obviously, by congratulating you on your appointment as chair of the committee, the PJSIS, as we we call it uh, in the trade. I will come back to that topic in a moment, though, Peter, because I want to have our listeners learn a little bit more about you first, if... Um, if we may. So perhaps you could tell us a little about your own professional and personal background on security and defence issues, because I get the sense that your own story has helped shape your mm. national security worldview. So a bit about you, Peter. Oh, it's always hard to talk about yourself, isn't it? But uh, I'll give it a go. Look, even before I got into parliament, I, I had 20 years plus in national security and foreign policy and um, and included studying international relations and international law, working for Department of Defense, Department of Foreign Affairs, working as a national security advisor for the former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, uh, working, you know, in academia and, and also in the think tank world at Brookings. Um, and that whole experience, I think, you know, I was driven or motivated to work in that space because I was so interested and passionate about um, – international relations and Australia's place in the world, like who we are as a nation and where we fit in the global context. And I think probably a lot of that stemmed from parents who are migrants who had been involved in some of the sort of the big shifts in the 20th century politics. You know, they escaped from Egypt post the the, the Six-Day War. There was communist, communist presence in Egypt that sort of caused my father to leave um, because he was quite critical of the KGB. Understanding a lot of those issues, even at a, a very young age, kind of piqued my interest um, and kind of drove me towards that space. And I th- I like also the the aspect of, of foreign policy and national security because it is so critically important um, to our national interest, 
we talk about the national interest law, but what does that mean? It's about who we are as a nation, how we fit into the world, our contribution um, to making the world a better place. There's that obviously a bit of that idealism um, that we've had in our DNA, I suppose, with respect to Australian foreign policy. So I guess that's kind of uh, shaped me a lot in my worldview and really focused on making sure that that the stability of the region, the the security that we've had, the prosperity that's flown from – flowed from that is something that we can continue through the work that we do in foreign policy. So it sounds to me hearing your account there, your narrative that um, that identity is a really important part mm. of your thinking about national security. And that's consistent in my mind with one of the messages we're hearing from this government, which is that the the Australia that we project to the world is actually almost part of our um, almost almost part of our policy armory when it comes to national security. It's that projection of, of who we are as a nation. I just wonder uh, what, what your view is on that. Yes, it is. It's a big part of of explaining to the world who we are. There's a lot of misunderstanding about Australia, even today, uh, not really understanding how multicultural we are, how diverse we are, misperceptions about our nation, which I think um, we've got a bit of work to to correct. But but as as important as that is the identity in relation to our commitment uh, to democracy and dem- democratic sy- systems of governance, if you like, and the uh, liberal international rules-based order the international rule of law, human rights, um, the freedom of uh, press, freedom of association, the independence of judiciaries, all of the kind of elements of democracy, which are frankly uh, under attack uh, globally, our commitment to that, but also our history, our long history as a, as a one of the longest you know, standing democracies of the world is actually quite important. Um, and that is a part of our identity as much as our diversity and, and, and the other aspects of who we are as Australian. And it's actually quite important in the, in this particular point in time in the 21st century with, with such uncertainty and volatility in our strategic circumstances. It's important in the sense that we have a foundation to speak from with respect to why we should be defending those principles. Look, thank you. And that's um, frankly quite useful for our students as well, because here at the National Security College, we like to look at the relationship uh, between national interests, uh, national values and national identity, and to explore whether there's a case for them to be mutually reinforcing. Uh, Mm. And I think we're hearing a little, little bit of that. But let's move to some of the big issues, Peter. You've mentioned already the uh, the challenge to an international rules-based order from authoritarian states. Uh, so whether it's that issue or, or other matters, what do you think are the big uh, strategic problems that concern Australia for the future? Well, first of all, uh, you're right. There is globally a contest between authoritarian autocratic regimes and democracies, but also other uh, nations that are not gold standard democracies, but certainly still want to abide or have a, a beneficial or have an interest in in ensuring that there is a, a stable rules based order um, because they're smaller, because they they trade and so on. Um, and that contest is uh, we're in the midst of that right now. We see it playing out, obviously, with the brutal invasion of Ukraine. We see it in the Tatmadaws, you know, um, uh, sort of military coup in. In Myanmar, uh, when there was a formation almost of a nascent democratic government uh, killed off, we see it, uh, you know, in the breaches of international law 
of the sea and, and other attacks on the trade, trading and also security frameworks that have been, we've been come accustomed to as framing um, that rules-based order for us for, for decades. Uh, and it's, and it's also illiberal democracies. I mean, there's concern around some uh, backsliding of, of some European countries like Hungary, for example, um, as well. So this is the contest. And in in the midst of this context, Australia has a pretty critical role. I've often said, you remember our former prime minister used to say that Australia, can I use a vulgarity here? He used to say that Australia was we'll our, see. we'll see, you're going to cut this out. <laughs> Australia, Australia was at the arse end of the world, right? You know, right, but, yes. but now we are no longer. We might translate that for, <laughs> translate for the students. Listeners. That was a statement by our former Prime Minister Keating, but we are front, we are right in the middle of the most important region, the Indo-Pacific for the 21st century. And what we do actually matters in foreign affairs and national security, international relations to help shape that region. And, and I go back to that earlier formulation around stability, security, and prosperity, they're not just going to happen automatically. Uh, we have a huge challenge now because that rules-based order is under attack. Um, it's state actors that seek to diminish and, and, and bring it down, non-state actors as well, um, through all sorts of attacks on, on our systems. Um, and we have a really important role, Australia has an important role in my view, in helping shape the 21st century so that we can continue some semblance of that prosperity and that stability uh, for future generations. The way you speak about this, Peter, it seems to connect the challenges we have here in the Indo-Pacific region, which um, certainly, I think, uh, to put it politely, plays a pretty central role in world affairs now, with uh, challenges in Europe, for example, with the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, challenges to sovereignty and democracy everywhere. Uh, what are your thoughts about whether we are or aren't in a global contest? Because that is actually a, a debated point. Oh, I think we are. I, I have no doubt we are in a global contest. And if there's any doubt about that, just look at those who are seeking to diminish the international rules-based order or the liberal rules-based order. Uh, you see a strategic convergence between Beijing and Moscow. You've seen a, a partnership agreement which was struck between Beijing and Moscow I think a week even before, just the week before Putin invaded Ukraine, you see support for Russia f from uh, countries like China. Um, and so I don't have any doubt that there is this contest that, that is under underway. Um, and, uh, you know, this is playing out in, in lots of different parts of the world um, in many different ways. And it is fundamentally a question about what kind of world we want to live in, right? Do we want a world in which there is more of an arbitrary you can have a rules-based order, Rory, it does, and it could be a, a one that's not necessarily a liberal rules-based order. It's just a different one that's imposed in, in a sense that doesn't respect the rule of law. It doesn't respect democracy. It doesn't adhere to the, those principles that we've become accustomed to. I actually think in, in some respects our um, communities have become inured or, or taken for granted some of the benefits that flow from these principles. But people in Myanmar who are dying and getting shot in the street protesting for democracy or those in Hong Kong who stood up so courageously, they're putting their life on the line for principles that we may have taken for granted. Yeah. And that is, I think that's a very powerful um, uh, part of this story that people are prepared to protest and to sacrifice um, for those principles because they know how important they are for their children, their grandchildren's future. And I think when you talk about taking it for granted or perhaps, you know, there's been some complacency in our political class on these issues over the years. It's interesting that I'm hearing 
this kind of message more and more from uh, from parliamentarians in Australia uh, and elsewhere today. And I want to, on that note, turn to the question of um, engagement uh, among parliaments. You know, mm. interparliamentary engagement is one of those diplomatic tools to build the coalitions that, uh, let's say, we we need if there's a global contest. Now, in your case, you're a member of the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, uh, mm-hmm. for instance. Uh, tell us a bit more about that group and and why did you decide to join? Um, it it is a group of uh, about thirty two, I think it's thirty or thirty two um, democracies around the world, co chairs from. Also, all across the political spectrum, you know, Labor, Liberal, Republican, Democrat, Greens in Europe, it is, uh, you know, I- ideologically speaking, right across the political spectrum, uh, but joined in a common um, commitment to democracy, um, to the principles that we've just been told in, in upholding the international rules-based order uh, and working on policies as lawmakers, engaging together in an interparliamentary sense. Uh, on how we obviously deal with um, the rise of China and 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 policies around that. Now, what's interesting about it is, yes, it's all about advancing our um, cybersecurity capability. It's about countering foreign interference. It's about laws that look to strengthen our relationships and in the Indo-Pacific um, and trade and security and uh, all of these different elements and doing it through our parliaments. Um, the interparliamentary part of this is, I think, really important. It's almost as if the democracies of the world have woken up, uh, particularly in the last, well, I say, what, five or so years, to the threat and m- brought into even more sharper relief by the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Look at the European parliaments and governments who uh, Finland is no longer Finland- Finlandizating itself or whatever that term <laughs> term is. Switzerland was you know, neutral for hundreds of years. Uh, you know, Sweden's looking at joining NATO. Th- there is a real shift in, in the position of both the, the governments and the parliaments in, in Europe, and they've become enlivened to the threat to their very the very ex- existential threat to their existence, um, you know, um, and people can be cynical about it and say, oh, well, you know, Nord Stream got turned off and the gas supply from Russia, that's what's driving this. But I think it's much more than that and it's much deeper than that, Rory. At any rate, the interparliamentary work yeah. is is actually important because we can learn from each other and certainly when, when it comes to our passage of Magnitsky laws, for example, here in Australia last year or our carrying foreign interference transparency scheme, you know, the, the other countries, other democracies are hungry to learn from us and we're hungry to learn from them about how best to protect our critical infrastructure through our laws, how best to counter foreign interference, how best to advance uh, and protect and enhance our democratic uh, systems of governance. Yeah, I mean, this can be, I guess, criticised or has been criticised as being something of a, a Western club, uh, you know, uh, Western democracies, Anglo democracies, Five Eyes democracies and others. I mean, how much evidence is there that this kind of interparliamentary engagement is expanding beyond that predictable grouping? I'll tell you the evidence. Um, I spend most of my time engaging with a Ugandan MP, Indian MPs. Um, this is not just a, what you would call a Western or Anglo or a Five Eyes. These are these are democracies around the world, uh, parliamentarians who are very, very keen on ensuring that they find ways to enhance or produce national security laws and other laws that protect what they cherish, which is democracy. Um, and so it goes well beyond, I think, those limited um, that limited scope. Um, and and it is it, it is expanding as well. Um, and, and it has to. It can't just be the perception that it's just Western. 
What are the, what about other parts of of Asia or the Indo Pacific? You've got Japan involved in this. Japan's uh, member, Republic yeah. of Korea. What about Korea. Indonesia, for example? Uh, there was an Indonesian MP present as well at the IPAC conference. So you do have, uh, as I said, African MPs. You have uh, Asian um, people representing Asian parliaments from ASEAN countries, as well as uh, more broadly across Asia. Asia there was a Mongolian MP there that I was having a really good conversation about there, there where they're exposed to, to for example, Russian. Energy and so on. So, as I said, this, the, the, these democracies have become enlivened. The parliamentarians have become enlivened to the the threats to their own countries um, in a way that I haven't seen. And, and certainly, that engagement, that interparliamentary engagement, is is beneficial to all of us. Now, looking at Southeast Asia, which I know uh, has been and is a strong focus of um, the Albanese government in its international engagement, uh, there's in my view, clearly a challenge in that region, not only for influence between China and and uh, and others, but also arguably a challenge for Australia to um, demonstrate its own footprint, its own engagement as a as, as a comprehensive partner. What are you seeing as as the opportunities, whether it's with Indonesia or or, or others in Southeast Asia, to do that? Well, well first of all, it's interesting your your point about. These countries in the region, the ASEAN countries and, and other countries in, in the Indo-Pacific, there obviously is a, there. You could probably describe a lot of countries as hedging. Would that be the correct term? A foot in both camps, playing off you know the big players against each other to, for their own benefit. But I think there's also a growing perception and understanding of the threats to their their existence in, in the current sort of the status quo, if you like, of where they're at. And so that whole engagement that we're seeing in the region in Indo-Pacific is all about convincing a lot of countries that might be in two minds about the importance of these principles, what it actually means to them going forward. Even if they're not a gold standard democracy, there is a real benefit in defending the rules-based order because it's in their economic interests as well, as well as national interests, if you like, and, and, and security interests. So there is this struggle going on in the region, yeah? And so um, I think the opportunities that you ask about are many opportunities. I think a lot of it turns on economic security and um, that's important. Um, Genuine and substantive alternatives to the BRI, which is, you know, obviously quite um, appealing to some countries but has its issues and there's the debt debt trap diplomacy that has become a real issue for many countries, not just in Asia, by the way, in Africa as well, clearly. So economic security is really important. Genuine, substantive trade and open and, and open trade um, across the region and with the United States and Europe and so on, but also um, you know, opportunities around investment and substantial investment and in infrastructure. I know that President Biden and the G7 put out their infrastructure initiative, which is an important step. There was also Indo-Pacific economic framework. These are all really critically important in that whole push and pull around the, the hedging uh, element. Um, and there are other smaller things like sports diplomacy, for example. I know some people might not think about that much, but you know, President Widodo is a mad football fan, right? So and his son owns a football team in in their league. Now, why not have the A-League champions play exhibition games against the Indonesian championship and have the pol- political leaders there meet as well as a trade forum or energy forum or tech forum in and around the football where people can get around? So that cultural exchange, that that, that that's something that you can't really measure 
uh, it's, it's hard to measure. It's not so tangible, but it's of great value because it builds deepening. It deepens the relationships that we have with our partners and things that we share, uh, and so that's important. I mean, I've often criticised. Um, our relationship with India as being one of benign neglect over decades. With India or Indonesia? With India. Yeah, with yes, India. No, I really sorry, I tacked right, over to India right, because yes. it was all about the three Cs, you know, yeah. and I was sick. Everyone's sick of the three Cs. You know what the three Cs are, cricket, Commonwealth and curry. Sort of like the relationship's yeah. way more than that and can be way more than that. Um, and I think we need to take those additional steps. For too long, our business community for decades, our governments um, saw the pot of gold, you know, in Beijing and went for that, and there was a lot of easy money made. Uh, now we have to do some real hard yards. And you know, I think it's disgraceful that our two-way trade with Indonesia is 2% of our total trade. I mean, this is a, a country that's almost 300 million people, an hour flight from Darwin, important northern neighbour, and yet we're not doing the hard work. And it was so great to see Prime Minister Albanese visit Indonesia, same with foreign, the foreign minister and, and the and the um, ministers that went there and started to really re build up that relationship again and, and and make the point that it's so important to us. So w- without without stretching the metaphor too much, you, you'd argue that uh, if, if, if the ball's been dropped in the past, there's a pretty comprehensive agenda there to, to, to pick it up. And, um, Absolutely. And People will say that the, the Albanese governments, um, they've been very active. We've been very active in the first couple of months in foreign affairs. Um, it's about resetting relationships, whether it's with President Widodo or President Macron. Certainly hit um, the ground running. Yeah. It hit the ground running. But that's important. That that matters. Um, but also what matters is the substance that we're setting up uh, you know, within those and around those relationships. Uh, in the Pacific, for example, it's not just it's yes, it's a matter of respect for our, our partners in the Pacific and treating them not in a patronizing way or a you know paternalistic way. But it's also about the substance of the engagement and, and you know, the, the the partnership that's there, whether it's around support for preventing illegal fishing or it's education or it's, uh, you know, migration, you know, work visas and so on. These are things that matter to our partners and we, we need to work with them on that, whether it's climate change, which is such an existential threat to all of us, but certainly our Pacific partners. We're doing the substance as well as the resetting of the relationship. We'll be right back. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. It's it's such a challenging time in regional and global affairs, and there's, as you say, a strategic contest underway. So I think, in many ways, uh, those who are watching uh, Australia's policy settings are going to be looking for that that substance, and I guess a sense of how all the elements mesh together in in, in strategy. But let's 
Let's move on to your uh, your role with uh, the PJSS, Peter, as, as chair of that mm. uh, really important parliamentary committee. What do you see as its key functions? Uh, some of our listeners will know exactly what the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security does, but for others, it's going to be something of a mystery. So why does it matter? Well, it matters because it is one of the most critically important uh, committee parliamentary committees in the parliament because, and I say it's twofold, the objectives. One, ensure that we get the best possible national security laws passed through our parliament. The, role, the work and the role of the, the committee is to assess national security bills, all the national security bills that go through, and and hopefully by consensus come out the other end with the best possible recommendations around those bills to make sure we have the best possible laws, whether it's countering foreign interference, whether it's cybersecurity, whether it's um, around privacy, whatever it might be, making sure we get the best possible Laws and and one that strikes the balance right between the protection of individual liberty and privacy and public security and, and collective security. The second is the 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 role of oversight and assessment of the intelligence and security agencies. Always important, but particularly more more so um, in this critical period that we faced we're faced with. So, assessing the efficacy, the effectiveness, the 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 value of taxpayer dollars being spent in those intelligence security agencies and making sure we're getting the most bang for our buck um, uh, through the work of these agencies um, towards our national objectives and national interests is of real critical importance. They're the two big objectives of, of that committee. And it's done in a way, and it has been done traditionally in a way, which is largely consensus-based, uh, largely you know, um, one in which we won't say bipartisan, but there's a, a really strong effort to, to 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 leave the partisan stuff, the silly stuff to the side and really work on the national interest. We might disagree on a lot of things on the way we get to, to where we're getting, um, and that's hashed out in the committee's work, if you like. But that iterative approach and that sort of debate helps us get to consensus and to get better laws and better assessments out to the government of the day. And the uh, the PJSS, this this committee also has not only a a pretty privileged position in the Australian system, but it seems to have special access to allies and partners. I and mean, I understand you've just returned from an official visit with uh, committee colleagues to Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything you can disclose on this in this public conversation about what were the big issues you discussed with colleagues in the United States? What are some of the big insights you've gained? From that visit, any surprises about America's strategic priorities? Um, yeah, we had great, great set of meetings in DC last week. Met with the uh, director of national intelligence. I met with, um, as well as White House National Security Council uh, um, directors and, and staff, and the teams there. We met with uh, congressional leaders as well, the House Armed Services Committee, as well as um, uh, the Senate and, and uh, other Congress Congress uh, members of Congress. Um, uh, this is kind of a composite, uh, I guess, a sort of response to your question in the sense of, you know, the the uh, the place that the US is in on this stuff. I think the main thing that came through to me was that the US, um, and, and this is a, it's a, it's a, it's a big system, it's a big government, right? But the amount of coordination and uh, effective coordination that we have, our security and our intelligence agencies with the US is quite remarkable. I haven't seen anything like this. In my twenty plus years of being around national security, the, the the acceleration of this and the integration is is. I think the um, you know the 
We've talked about interoperability in the past in a defence sense. I think the, the Deputy Prime Minister's talked about interchangeability more recently. So that's one takeaway. And they, they're hungry for our views on the Indo-Pacific because they know we're in the, in the region and as well as and, and have a degree of understanding. The other takeaway is that they want us to be engaged in this the, the shaping of the narrative in our region, working with our partners and friends in the region around explaining what AUKUS means or what the Quad means um, to countries in the region. Better coming from us, not just coming from the US. More voices explaining the benefits to, to the region, the benefits are, I think flowing into security and stability of the region, what we're trying to do within those within that architecture. Um, the, the kind of narrative around, you know, why it's so important to avoid conflict in the region, to reduce tension in the region. Also good coming from us in that in that respect. So we have work to do, and, I, and our foreign minister has been doing a tremendous job in that space uh, in her visits to, to partners in the region as well. Um, and so I, I found, though, they were the, the, the two takeaways. It's interesting because there's also a degree of bipartisanship in the US. This is kind of unique. <laughs> Yeah, given I mean, this, it's pretty amazing to think of any bipartisanship <laughs> in the United States. But when it moment. comes to the Indo-Pacific and when it comes to you know defending the rules-based order, you certainly see that coming through, and that comes through through the Congress as well. But everywhere else, there's there's a high degree of contestability. It's politics. It's very partisan. Um, they were kind of a bit surprised by the bipartisanship that we demonstrated in some respects, with our committee members being from different sides of the aisle. Well, I mean. Uh, you don't have a sense that the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, the the depth uh, and duration of that conflict, is distracting the United States from the China challenge uh, and Australia's concerns in the Indo-Pacific. No, I don't think so. I think to earlier part of our conversation that the convergence, the the connectivity, if you like, of 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 the threat and the challenges that we face, whether it's in Europe or whether it's uh, in in the Indo-Pacific, they're effectively one and the same. There's a reason why Australia is the non the largest non NATO military con- contributor to to Ukraine because I think the Prime Minister and the previous government did as well, but our current government, our Prime Minister, understands that the threat posed by the brutal invasion of Ukraine to sovereign uh, territory, to integrity, to the rule of law, the international rule of law, as he calls it, to human rights. We've seen that the horrible stories around the mass graves that have been uncovered as Ukrainian forces took back some territory in the east. Those threats are threats to all of us. I mean, this fight is our fight as well in many respects because you, you allow you allow that to occur, you allow that diminishment of that rules based that liberal rules based order, then it then it impacts other parts of the world. So I I, I, don't, I just can't see how you you can uh, compartmentalize um, these issues and challenges in a geographic sense. So um, I wanted to just stick to the. The question, not only of bipartisanship, but of almost to use probably to misuse this term, the the united front that um, not only <laughs> democracies need to develop, but I think that we need to develop ideally internally as well to protect our interests, uh, our values, our, our identity, and that goes a little bit <clears throat> to the question of the the composition of your committee. Uh, now, the PJCS is pretty unique in that um, it tends to work as much as possible based on unanimity. It's a committee uh, where opposition parliamentarians have a very significant role. Mm. Um, we now have a parliament with uh, quite a lot of crossbenchers as well. 
so I'm just wondering if you can offer any thoughts on how your committee or you would engage with the crossbench when it comes to national security and national security law reform. Um, I'm very, very keen to, uh, first of all, uh, treat all the members of parliament with respect and engage with them and brief them and and discuss these issues uh, regardless of which political party they come from or they whether they're an independent or otherwise in fact I've reached out to some of the crossbenchers about uh, having conversations around national security and foreign policy offered any um, if they were interested in, in coming to talk about it further um, so I think that's really important um, this goes beyond party politics or partisanship uh, this is about um, as a starting point accepting that MPs in our system have the best interests at heart, which is what's best for Australia in the long term. So I'm open to engaging on that front. Um, with respect to the opposition, you did point out correctly that there has been a long tradition of, of, of opposition playing a very important role within the PGCIS, unlike other parts of our system. Um, there's unanimity and some consensus that goes through there. Um, I, I would like to continue that tradition. Um, as I said, we might disagree on certain things, but we'll do our best to try and reach a consensus for the, the, the best interest of Australia and for our parliament. Um, and I've already, I was a parliamentarian in the opposition in the previous parliament and I was a member of the committee, so I saw that play out firsthand. Um, and I think that I'll try to continue that tradition as chair of the of the new committee. And I'll, look, I will push slightly hard on that, Peter, mm. because I know, I mean, you've, uh, you you know you like many parliamentarians you've 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 worn different hats at different times um you, you yourself have said some pretty partisan things in the heat of election have, campaigns yes, yeah, no, on foreign and security policy i recall i think when um you know when the election campaign reached a low point some months ago and there was talk of manchurian candidates and so on i think you you know you you came out fighting in a partisan sense so mm-hmm. um how do you square that with your vision for how um labor Governs on foreign affairs and security in the in the broader unified national interest. Okay, so the first part of your question, yes, this is politics. You, it, it's a contest of ideas. It's partisan. Uh, you need to hold to account the government if you're in the opposition. You need to attack if you think that there is uh, a mistake or a weakness that needs to be exposed. I think that. Uh, is a good thing, good part of our system, and I'm be the first to go hard. I kind of trying to play politics like I used to play football, cross the into the onto the white line, go in hard, tackle hard, take them out. But once you cross the white line after the game, you can have a beer with your opponent, right? So it's the same sort of thing in, in my formulation. That's me. I think the government, the government's approach to foreign affairs and, and national security is is obviously different than the previous government. You know, there's some su- substantive difference. Uh, there's there's clearly a difference in style. Um, in, in you know, my criticism of the previous government was there was a lot of chest beating. There was a lot of um, using national security and foreign policy to score some domestic political points. That, at least that's my charge, uh, and not much walking the walk. A lot of talking the talk, but not much walking the walk. And and we've seen now with the uh, the extremely accelerated uh, um, you know decision making that we have to make around big acquisition and preparedness in defence and security that that. Kind of is, was true that they they talked a big game but didn't sort of follow up. They started to, but they wasn't probably as much as they could have. Um, and and our approach, I think you you've seen with the foreign minister and the prime minister, is focused on the national interest. It's less partisan in that sense that it's not about beating the chest or or conflating you know domestic point scoring with with foreign policy. 
I, I, I could not abide that in the previous uh, government. That, that was my big criticism. Whether it was Scott Morrison, you know, making decisions around moving embassies to help with a by-election, or whether it was whatever it was, it, it that to me is not uh, doing your best sort of towards the national interest. So I think our government. Uh, I hope, and I'm pretty sure if I've seen from the evidence so far, will will be really responsible in 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 our, our national security and foreign affairs. Um, but where there's criticism to be made, we'll make the criticism. You know. So th- there's a lot to watch there, and I suspect that uh, many will come back to these issues in, in in years to come. I want to go before we wrap up, Peter, to a couple of points of detail mm. because I think. You've been very uh, generous with your, your time and thoughts, um, but a lot of this stuff is very big picture. Um, two, I guess, very specific points. One is about the work of your committee uh, because it's going to be as well as, um, you know, if you like, visionary work that has that has bipartisanship at its heart, I hope. It also is going to go to some very fine-tuned judgments on points of detail, uh, points of technology, points of law. And one of the big issues that your committee will deal with uh, during this parliament will be the overhaul of nothing less than Australia's electronic surveillance powers. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a very important piece of law reform. It goes to the heart of agencies' cooperation with telcos, but also the relationship of our citizens with the security services. What are you thinking when you think about the key principles that should guide this kind of law reform? So I'll answer the specifics of that question, but but first, just a general point about the work of the community in this space. You're absolutely right. There is the the broader geostrategic stuff, big picture stuff, like you know wanting to engage um, with with countries around the world with, with the committee. I want to go to Japan, South Korea, India with a delegation and engage at that level. So we play a, a bigger a bigger picture and that's role. That's getting beyond as well. the the sort of yeah. Western, yeah. Um, you know, yeah. stereotype. Yeah, exactly. But but but. The work of the committee is intense. There's the foreign interference transparency scheme. There's you know temporary exclusion orders. There's review the reviews and, and hearings that have to, to be conducted on you know extremism that have been finished. Um, there's the assessment. There's the national security bills that are coming through that we need to automatically assess. Some of them are very very technical. Um, and and you and and there's also the the oversight over uh, our intelligence agencies that are that are stat- statutory obligations that we have to conduct. There's a lot of work there. The one that you're talking about particularly is the, you know, the repeal of the Telecommunications uh, Interception and Access Act, the Surveillance Devices Act and the ASIO Act, um, which came to, comes out of recommendations that were made, I think, in the Re- Richardson Review uh, around um, bringing them up as fit for purpose in the modern world. And so to answer your question, and my view is this, obviously a committee would look at all the, the, these new laws as a body of work going on Around um, replacing it with an act that um, that is up to date, uh, that is transparent, that is clear, you know, that does away with kind of the patchwork that we've seen of of, of laws and acts that have tried to cover, uh, and and almost really the way to visualise it is that our legislation has had to try and keep pace with startlingly very accelerated and fast advances in technology and encryption and anonymization or whatever they call it, um, which it's been unable to do so. It's like we've been riding a bicycle and this thing's been going past us in a in, in a Ferrari or something. So there there is a need for that legislation to get up to speed, so to speak. Um, and so I think for me, the, uh, the, the fundamental principles are around protection of privacy, 
uh, around uh, transparency within the, the 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 structures of the act of the act itself around safeguards and protections around oversight around how industry and stakeholders work within that context as well oversight bodies and the public and it's always Rory as you know in national security a balance between on this one one hand individual liberties and issues around their privacy and protection of that their rights versus sometimes the um you know the need for protection of the public more broadly public security and so on it's not always that di- that dichotomy is not always exactly what it is sometimes it's a bit different but that's the balance and i think the you know the challenge that we have for example on things like data um being used or utilized in in, in ways how much does the individual have a right to decide what they want to mm. give up as far as their own personal and private data? How much do they even know about it, um, let alone uh, being conscious of what they're giving up? You know, you sort of talk to some people about, say, TikTok. TikTok's come up in the media a fair bit. It's like, oh, your 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 data, your cat video is being used to, to go into a, a big data crunch and an algorithm and then it's being used for other purposes, possibly by a state actor that owns yeah. that, right? Most people will shrug their shoulders. How does cat video have anything to do? Like, what's the problem? You know, how do you how do you explain that to people? You know, this is part of our problem. So, I think education and information uh, dissemination of information about people's uh, how their data is being used, so they can make informed decisions as well. But that only gets you up to a certain point. Then, structurally, the the legislative framework has to provide protections as well. Um, around that data, so that's the balancing. That's the cha- that's the difficulty of this. And I think that's just a classic example of why that committee really is such an engine room of of, of law and of and of translating policy into law. And I think it's a place where you and your colleagues are going to do the hard yards <laughs> yes. in in the years ahead, um, Peter. I want to end on a personal note because we began this conversation on a bit of a personal note about your story uh, and why national security is so important for you. Um, you've taken a pretty strong interest in uh, individual cases of Australians who've been, frankly, arbitrarily detained mm-hmm. overseas. Um, whether it's uh, the case of um, of Robert uh, Peter in um, Iraq, uh, or whether, if we have time to touch on it, it's you know some pretty uh, high profile uh, and and um, really confronting cases in China. Mm. What can you say about uh, those stories and? why you think this is something that Australia should focus uh, its resources on trying to um, to address. Uh, it's also Colin Moore Gilbert was another prominent case. Uh, and there was – so, look, it's a bit hard to talk about this because as you and your listeners might be aware, there are th- certain things happening in the back channels to try and help um, uh, progress these cases. E- each individual case is different. I think that's the first point to make. But it is really difficult because you know, when I deal with some of the families um, who have a person, a family member who's detained, uh, there is a strong emotional, psychological element to this, which is about managing their expectations, but also their their their, their mental state in some respects. So I, I've been, I think that's been something I've tried to do in the past. Why? What you ask? Why do you do that? I think as a member of parliament, whatever I can do, whatever the platform gives me to try and help Australians who are in these difficult positions, I try and do. 
Uh, and then I know that I have some experience and background, you know, in foreign policy and national security or even in, in parts of the world where I have contacts that I can utilize and help in those areas. Of course, I'm going to try and do it. But it is quite difficult, Rory, to be honest with you. It's, it's not an easy thing to do. It sucks up a lot of uh, time and effort and resources, which we don't have. But it's still important and I still put up as a priority because it's about a person's life. You know, it's about an Australian. Um, and so if we're not going to do it, who will? There's big support, obviously, from DFAT and from the government um, around this. Um, there's a lot of these cases, uh, and some of them have been uh, extremely emotional and difficult, but it's wor- the work is important. It has a purpose, and it's about helping people uh, in these situations. So these are just uh, a few of the cases where, you know, very, uh, very personal circumstances intersect with those questions about national interest mm. that, you know, have to animate policymakers at, at the highest levels. And that takes, I guess, us finally to the question of principles. I mean, what principles do you think need to animate Australian um, security policy in this, you know, in this troubled international environment? You mean values as well as principles? Absolutely. You, well, interpret as you, as, as you wish. <laughs> you but I, yeah, I, 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 I actually think, um, you know, and let's take a case study, for example. Myanmar is a perfect one because I've been very outspoken about Myanmar. Um, and the reason I have is because I place a imp- really important weight on the principles and the values around democracy, which the people in Myanmar are dying for, Right. So for me, you know, the, the, you, you can ha- you can analyze this through what we would call strategic realism. It's a country that's in the middle of, you know, it's in between India and China and, you know, geostrategically important. There are companies and multinationals involved in there and all the rest of this stuff. And it's part of the big power uh, shifting and, and contesting and all the rest of it. Um, but I also think that that kind of attitude is also, it's not strategic realism, it's strategic cowardice because fundamentally – Beyond all those little plays is the, the the deeper question, which goes back to what we were talking about earlier. This contest between authoritarian regimes and democracy is the contest of the 21st century. Like that, that's what we are engaged in right now. Whether you like it or not, that's what's happening. Yeah, in every facet of life. So if we are unable to stand for the principles of democracy and for the things that we're talking about in the rules-based order and human rights and the rule of law and so on, mm. in foreign policy, it's not strategic realism, it's actually cowardice because they'll win that part of the con- that particular contest and they can win another one and another one and another one and then we find ourselves becoming more drawn and drawn inward to defending ourselves. I, 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 that's why I think it was so important to speak up for the democracy activists in Myanmar, uh, for, for those who are getting on the front lines, who are being cut down by the Tatmadaw. Some 2,000 people have lost their lives. Some 14,000 have been imprisoned. These are people who are fighting for democracy. The, the parliament, they had their parliamentary elections. On the day they were about to form the new government, the military regime took over in a bloody coup. Yeah. So, you know, I called for in parliament um, for, for Australian companies to cease doing business with them. I called for sanctions on. The, the the leadership and their and their uh, family members that might benefit from traveling to Australia and so on um, for a, an engagement with the national unity government and the CRPH um, for more and greater assistance and aid to come through the Thai border to help um, the resistance because it's important 
we've got to help. We're, if, if we don't speak up as members of a democracy, who will? Same, I, I apply the same principle to speaking so loudly on Hong Kong, for example, and the bravery that was shown by the protesters in Hong Kong. They were fighting to hold on to something they knew was of great value, and unfortunately they've lost that battle. So it's a somewhat bleak note to conclude our conversation on, Peter, but I, I take uh, a deeper message from everything you've said, which is kind of motivating in, in these challenging times about the need to, to mobilise national resources and build those international coalitions. Any closing thoughts on how you see the challenge playing out over the next few years? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> this is, the no, is this the Nostradamus question, the crystal ball question? I... I couldn't tell you, I couldn't predict. I, I know this though, that the democracies of the world and, and, and other countries that have a commitment to or see a benefit in that rules-based order have been enlivened to the threats towards that, uh, that rules-based order in a way which has led to greater coordination uh, amongst nations, amongst parliaments. We were talking about interparliamentary thing. Um, and, there, and that coordination probably wouldn't have happened if that – the level of attacks weren't so obvious, you know. Well, we've come out of a slumber almost and realised there's something worth protecting and we are working together in a way that I haven't seen in a long time. And, the, and, these, and this is in the context of the architecture that we talked about, but our engagement, our efforts. Um, and then secondly, this is also important, the public also recognises this. Now, foreign policy and national security used to be over here, that was a visual that I did with my hand on one end. You're not going to see that on radio. We understand. And domestic <laughs> issues were over there, you know, somewhere else over there. But I think you just talk to your average Australian now and they completely understand the connectivity now because the um, volatility in the region means their supply chains are con constrained. You know, builders can't get material or it costs a, a mozza. Everything's interconnected. They're all having a knock-on effect. And, they, and for, the, for the first time in a long time, Foreign policy is very much interconnected with domestic issues in many respects. The cost of living, you know, we saw that with the Ukraine invasion and the cost of oil and all the rest of it, uh, gas. So they are two things that are really important. So if, it's not a prediction, but it, what, it, what I'm saying is that because of that, and it's not just the West, it's all of these countries who are really enlivened to this are working together in a, in a really coordinated fashion to defend and protect and enhance those values and the liberal rules-based order because they've woken up to how how important those values are to protect. And that's encouraging to me. It doesn't necessarily mean we're going to win, but I, I think it gives us a really good chance to win, win out because that narrative, eventually I would think most people in the world would want to be on that side of history. So the contest is on. Uh, Peter Khalil, thank you so much for joining us on the National Security Podcast and wishing you all the best. Thank you very much for having me, Rory. Cheers.